0: Um, I apologize for my, um, is it Barry White who has a really low voice. Um, I'm, I'm uh, on the winning end of a head cold here, um, but still fighting. So, uh, just to warn you. Um, the calmer uh, rhythms of summer are uh, winding down, and things are starting to rev up a little bit. I don't know if you sense that, there's this kind of internal clock that uh, hits an alarm for me when the fall is coming. Schools are starting back, and office life is probably picking up as people come back from vacations, and the typical school traffic will start again, and all those things. Uh, summer is fading, and fall is coming quickly, and um, life can feel so hurried with these with, with schedules that are just spilling over, and overcommitment, and those kinds of things. And I know. The fall in particular is a time that uh, people feel that. We live in a, a, a time and in an age when the hurried life is the praised life. And so I thought I'd ask for the question this morning, which is, why do we do this to ourselves? <laughs> I think part of the reason is because our, our culture does praise busyness and overactivity, and because Those things mask um, themselves as importance. If we're busy doing things, it seems like our lives matter. Even if it yields very little, it at least appears that way. And so in a setting like this, patience can be viewed as a lack of ambition, and waiting can be viewed as weakness. Uh, maybe you could think of a movie or of a TV show where the, the main character is found pushing their way through to get to the front of a line to demand what they want, or to insist on a dream at the expense of others or there 's different ways that we exalt um, and minimize the importance of, of patience and waiting. Our culture says that patience doesn 't pay and waiting doesn 't. I think part of the reason that is, is because there's an inward insecurity that that we have as a culture where we don't really know what our lives are for, but if we keep up a a level of nervous activity, it seems like we're doing something that matters, that's significant. It keeps us from slowing down and asking kind of that that question we don't want to ask, which is, what are we scrambling for? What are we hurrying for? Now, there's good reasons to be busy in life. I'm not down on busyness as in itself. But those who follow Jesus' way have an alternative presented to them because the future doesn't, cause, doesn't have to cause insecurity for us. The future is actually where our greatest security is. And as believers, we have a different way of interpreting and of living life because of that security We're not bound to kind of the panic of accomplishing these self-appointed purposes. Our purpose has been assigned. And so we're in a different kind of place. And not only has our purpose been assigned, but the purpose that God has given, which is to bring uh, rightful recognition to himself and to his son, those things are certain and sure. They're going to happen. Now, as whether you're not a follower of Christ or whether you are a follower of Christ, we, we're kind of stuck in the same position, even though we have similar hopes for the world, things like finding purpose and um, bringing justice for the oppressed and, and making sure the evil gets judged and you have fair and fulfilling work. You have, we make sure there's an equal standing in life for people. There's a pursuit of freedom and joy and love. We're all after the same things, and the secular world strives after those things with the resources that they have, and they never quite get there. But in the Christian faith, these things are not possibilities that depend on us. They are historical certainties. King Jesus will bring the world that we desire. He will do that, and it is sure to happen. And so that puts the follower of Christ in a different kind of position when reacting to the stresses of life. But, while we would hope for the same things, we're both stuck in this reality that we're both waiting. We say things like, we just can't wait for something, but then we do, right? Like, we have to. Waiting is not optional. It's something that we're forced to do. But there is a difference, even though we're both waiting, both those who are followers of Christ and those who are not, we're both waiting. We wait in different ways. And that's what this passage is about this morning. Do we wait with uncertainty or with certainty? Do we wait with panic or peace? Do we wait with anxiety or with hearts that are settled on things that are true? And so this morning, we're going to see that this promised return of Jesus, this hope for this lasting change I've been talking about, that it helps Uh, the followers of him to wait well. We wait differently. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope that just the talking about waiting well and and the certainty of this hope is attractive to you. I hope that there's something about that that you want to explore more. But if you're a believer here, if you're a Christian here, then I hope that this morning is just a simple reminder uh, to not get sucked into the busyness and the scurrying and the scrambling and the panic of the world that's around us. And we do that through what James tells us in this passage. I know everybody hates waiting, right? I know that that's a given, but there are things that James says that waiting does in us that are good things that make us think differently about waiting. So if you brought a Bible, open up your Bibles to the book of James. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some in the lobby. Please grab one. If you don't have a Bible at home, take it from us. We would love that to be a gift to you. while you're opening up to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, which is where we're going to be this morning, let me give you a little bit of background and then we'll, we'll read it. Um, this letter was written by the brother of Jesus, right, the leader of the Jerusalem church, most likely. Uh, the beginning of James uh, tells us that it's written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Dispersion meaning disperse, a, a likely reference to Jews who've been driven out of Palestine, or the Israel area, Jerusalem area. Uh, and and kind of are in this awkward place of being low on the totem pole now in a a foreign area, which is why James talks so much about the oppressed and um, that kind of thing is because it's likely what his audience is experiencing. And James is this letter that's really unique. James um, is clearly a very wise person, and it's kind of like wisdom ran into the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives. That's kind of what the book of James is like. And so uh, he's this black and white kind of guy. Wisdom's kind of like that. It assumes there is some gray, obviously, but uh, wisdom is a black and white thing. So you're either a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. Your religion is pure or it's worthless. Your wisdom is earthly, it's heavenly. You either wait well or you're kind of greedy and you grab all that you can here and now. So that's what James is like. So why don't we go ahead and just honoring God's word if you're physically able to stand up and we're going to read James 5, 7 through 11. Here's, I'll read that for us. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version and here's what it says. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient God's word to us. You can be seated. This morning, in your little outline that you got in your bulletin, uh, we'll go over the point really quickly, which is really simple. <coughs> and then we're going to go through the three pictures that James gives us as to how we can wait well. Okay? So, first, the point. Um, the point is essentially God's people be patient. God's people be patient. Now, how do we know he's talking to God's people? You know, if you look at verse 7 and uh, throughout the passage, he refers to them as brothers, okay? Uh, and I think he obviously means kind of the, the whole church in that way, referring to the family of God. There are parts in James when he's clearly not talking to people who are in the church, like early, the paragraph before it in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, when he s- seems to be speaking to this class that's been, a uh, wealthier class that's been oppressing. People uh, in the church he doesn't call them brothers but he makes a distinction here he seems to be talking to the family another reason why that makes sense is that if he's saying to take comfort in the coming of the lord and he's using biblical examples and he's talking about how faith sustains us then that really would only be applicable uh, to people who are in the family of god so he's talking to um, people who know the gospel um And his main point is pretty obvious, right? In verses 7 and 8, he says it three different times, and he says it in some different ways later on in the passage, but it's in the command form in the Greek, which just means be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient. And patience kind of flavors everything that James says in this letter. He, He talks about being patient with suffering and being patient with people who wrong you and being patient in your speech and being patient in making judgments about other people and being patient in your verbal commitments about things and just this is another way that he's encouraging this patience he says kind of nuances of it throughout the letter endurance or perseverance or be established these things are all pointing back to this kind of settled person now one thing about being patient he says is that it's not endless you notice he says be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the lord until the coming of the lord there's an end to this okay there is a finite number of times that you and I will need to exercise patience. Have you thought about that? We won't need to when the kingdom returns, right? When the Lord comes and all is made right. But it's easy to forget this, but patience won't be required one day. This is a short-term thing. Be patient until... Now, what does James have in mind with this patience? What does he mean? There's different kinds of pa- things that we call patience, like um, when you're listening to a person talk and you just want to bite their head off, but you're just buying time. That's kind of a form of patience, right? You're listening to someone um, or you're interacting with someone and, and you don't like what they're doing and you're kind of quietly getting resentful. It's like that slow burn going on but you're not saying anything immediately. That's like a form of patience. I don't think the Bible would call that patience, but it's toleration, you could say. But the patience that he's talking about is this confidence that help is coming. It's hopeful. It looks forward, and by looking forward, it's able to live differently in the present. And so he actually gives us a clue to this in verse 8, after he talks about the farmer. He says, you also be patient... And then he wants to explain what this patience is, and he uses a different word. He says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This word establish is used of when Timothy strengthens uh, believers' faith in 1 Thessalonians 3, or of how Paul stabilizes and kind of grounds Christians in 2 Thessalonians. But the clearest example of what this word establish really means is When we think established, we think this place was established in 1852, right? Kind of when it started. But what he means uh, is most clearly seen in Romans 1, verses 11 through 12. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, meaning let me explain what strengthen you, what I mean by that, that is That we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So, this word established means an inner strengthening that occurs through the encouragement of faith. Okay, so in James' case, this inner strengthening occurs by thinking about the coming of the Lord, that that's going to happen someday in history at a point in history, that by doing that, there's an inner strengthening that happens by faith that that allows a person's heart to be more settled than anxious. Does that make sense? So that's what establish means. So when he's talking about patience and and establishing our hearts, he's talking about this inner reality, this inner calm that happens when you have the long view, okay? Okay. It's not like when someone makes you mad and you count to ten kind of patience, you know. It's a much bigger thing than this. It's kind of the banner over your whole life. It's not the day-to-day patience that's required. It's just what you need to get through life in a fallen world. It's kind of what he's talking about, that inner strengthening, okay? That's what he means. He also says in verse 11, he says, Blessed we consider those who are blessed who remain steadfast. Another way of saying to be patient. This patience has a toughness to it. It's a a willingness to endure suffering. So it's this inner strengthening. So that's his point. God's people be patient. That's what he means by it. Have this inner strengthening of faith as you think about the day that you'll actually meet Jesus. Be strengthened by that. But then he tells us how how to do that. He doesn't just say, well, should be more patient, right? Which is the least helpful thing you can say to an impatient person, right? We need reasons. And so he gives us three pictures of what it means to wait well. The farmer, the judge, and then the prophets and Job. So first he says, wait well like the farmer in verses 7 and 8. You can see it there. See how the farmer waits. Kind of a present tense, ongoing. Just learn from him. How he he waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Farming is a a really precarious uh, path at times, right? It requires diligence, and and that diligence really doesn't guarantee anything because you're dependent on the weather and things out of your control. But in James' time, these farmers would, uh, as they planted, they would need two different types of rains that would come through to get the ripest harvests. Okay, there was a fall rain that would occur, and then there would be a little bit of time, and there would be the spring rain. And both were necessary for a good crop. And so farmers were tempted, as these plants grew, and as it looked like they were going to uh, taste well and, and do well, to kind of cut it short and to not wait for that second rain. You'll notice that the waiting in this... This context doesn't disrupt the harvest, it actually makes it possible. It's not wasted waiting, it's necessary, it's absolutely essential to what's happening. In James 1, 2 through 4, he famously says, these verses that we probably have heard before, he says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" It's the same idea here of weathering the difficulties because of that end result, that precious steadfastness that we're after. He says, until the coming of the Lord. Or he says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's his reasoning for why we should act like the farmer. Now, what would stabilize a disciple who's struggling to wait? You'll get to meet Jesus soon. Your Lord's going to be here. You'll get to address him personally. It's almost here. You can almost picture different scenes of, of nurses helping a woman give birth, you know? Just keep going. It's almost here. Hang in there. Keep going. You'll get to meet him soon. Or the coach that's running with a you know, marathon runner for the last lap. You're almost there. You could see the finish line. That's the end. It's right there. You can see this farmer bending down and starting to see this crop change color and get ready. It's almost time. That's what James is trying to do. He's trying to get us to look, lean forward a little bit look forward to what's going to happen when Jesus crashes through. Now, this might all sound like a Hallmark card, you know, serene farmer bending down, strawberry, it's almost there, kind of thing. But patience is hard, right? I mean, it's the war. This is difficult, gritty stuff that patience requires. One author says, Patience is the evidence of an inner strength. Impatient people are weak and therefore dependent on external supports, like schedules that go just right and circumstances that support their fragile hearts. Their outbursts or oaths and threats and harsh criticisms of the culprits who cross their plan do not sound weak, but that noise is all camouflage of weakness. Patience demands tremendous inner strength. How does this farmer teach us to wait well? Well, First thing it teaches us is that diligence and dependence work together. Diligence and dependence work together. So assurance of a harvest doesn't mean that planting and fertilizing and watering are have no value, right? They've got to happen. Even though the work that's happening is subterranean, right? You can't monitor the progress of the crops. You can't look into the dirt. And in the same way... We must be diligent while we wait. We don't always know what God is doing. His work is very subterranean, you could say. It also shows us that waiting bears fruit and it sweetens the harvest. At our uh, home, we plant, planted a garden again this year and we're doing all that we can to keep our kids from picking early. But they see us picking and they see the older kids picking picking, and so they want to pick too. And so the point of the picking is just the picking. It's not eating, right? It's like, I want to be a picker too. And so I go up there and get this big green tomato. And I'm like, oh, and again, you know, because there's not, a, there's not a mindset to understand what the end goal is. It's just a temporary fleeting thing. They short circuit the benefits of waiting is what they do. And I think that's what James is trying to guard us against. The short-circuiting of disrupting the process of waiting and the difficulty of learning to trust him when it's hard. So don't short-circuit those benefits for temporary certainty. I think that's what James is saying. Do we do that? Let's consider this and apply as we go. Do we short-circuit the fruit of waiting by opting out of difficulty? Are we hopeful about our future if you're a follower of Christ? Are you trading in the benefit of waiting for temporary certainty? Has discouragement gotten the better of you? Maybe in prayer, you know, and you're just tired of praying. Been praying for 12 years and haven't seen anything happen. And you're discouraged. Maybe fear has monopolized these times of waiting, and, you, and you've just been gripped by it, and you've been driven by that, and you've lost sight that the Lord is at hand. His hand is on the doorknob of returning. Consider the Lord Jesus, right? He waited. He waited to begin his ministry, he waited for people to acknowledge who he was. Hebrews 5 8 says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. He waited for God's deliverance. He waited for the cross. He waited on the cross and was exalted and vindicated to the highest place. He's as low as low can be, and he was vindicated because he waited and he trusted. And he let the Lord of the harvest do what he was going to do. So wait like the farmer redemption number two image that james gives us is this judge so he encourages us to wait well by by warning us about what impatience would look like or do he says do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged behold the judge is standing at the door one author describes what this word grumble means he says it speaks of inner distress more than open complaint What's forbidden is not the loud and bitter denunciation of others, but the unexpressed feeling of bitterness or the smothered resentment that may express itself in a groan or a sigh. It means this groan or moan, this continual ongoing sense. It's what happens when our hearts rolls its eyes at, at the actions of another person in disgust. James seems to have what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7 in mind when he said that he warned us against judging others with a judgment that we're not applying to ourselves, a hypocritical judgment. So he says, don't grumble because you're going to be judged for that. And the judgment you use will be applied to you as well. See, there's a connection between impatience and grumbling. Listen to this quote from John Piper. This is fantastic. He says, impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. It springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. It may be prompted by a long wait in a checkout line or a sudden blow that knocks out half our dreams. The opposite of impatience is not a glib denial of loss, it's a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience, to wait in his place and go at his pace. If you think about it, this is why Moses and Aaron, when, when the people complained, said, your grumbling is not against us but against the Lord. They were grumbling to Moses and Aaron, but he was saying, no, 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 you don't understand. All grumbling eventually finds its way back the discontentment with how God is managing the universe. Like, that's your gripe. That's your complaint. So all grumbling and complaining is that. And resentment towards another brother or sister in the church is an example of that. And so he counter, how does he counter that? How do you get around that? You know, he says, remember that the judge is standing at the door as we unfairly oftentimes judge one another, if we are mindful of the fact that we too ourselves will be judged, that just tempers us in all kinds of ways, doesn't it? When I hear my kids arguing upstairs, which happens, and I go upstairs, and they hear kind of my weight, I'm the heaviest person in our home, going up the stairs, and they hear me walking down the hallway and my hand on the doorknob, and I open that door, all of a sudden... Everything gets very diplomatic, you know? People start working well together, and it's odd, you know, how things change just so dramatically, just by the presence of the judge, right, or of the father, you could say. (laughs) But I know better, right? But they act differently when they know that the judge is near, or when dad is near. And James is essentially saying, "Don't, don't lose sight of that. Our God is holy. His standards don't don't bend for family. There's no uh, kind of setting in which, obviously, we don't need to be in fear of that judgment uh, because Christ is our righteousness. But we will be judged as a family member, right, as a son or a daughter who's accepted in Christ. And so he's saying, mindful of that, this condescending, arrogant, nose up in the air kind of judgment has no place among the family of God none. And the reason he gives is because the judge is coming soon. This is why some of the proudest moments as parents is when your children actually do what you tell them to do when you're not there, right? Like they suspend their their own will in the moment. It's amazing because they know that the judge will return, right? Mom and dad will come back and we'll make all things right, And if they can be willing to delay just a few minutes what they know is right because they trust the judge is coming, that is a sign of maturity, isn't it? That's what we're looking for in children, to delay that, to trust authority to those things. That's what James is saying. Trust, the judge is going to come. So that helps us in a couple of ways. It helps us from, from being overly judgmental towards other people and harsh and critical and, and resentful and needing to get all our justice now. And it helps check our own hearts as we interact with people, especially the, the family of God, the church. So he gives us this image that helps us in multiple ways of the judge. What are the implications of this? Do you notice that God cares about our resentments? If you notice that, our internal feelings towards others are noticed by God. They matter to Him. Harboring resentment is like harboring terrorists. It's giving sanctuary to something that's deadly. And we need to be mindful and watchful of that. This might be a little bit odd, but when you're dealing with a difficult person, I'm wondering the effect what the effect would be if our minds were to go to the judgment of God. If we'd be able to find peace in that moment, knowing that this this irrational, uh, sinful thing that's happening, he sees, he knows about. And it would prevent us from lashing out and getting vengeance when we do such a sloppy job of that. You know, God's character really helps in these moments when it comes to resentment, right? His sovereignty oversees the wrong. His holiness knows exactly what's right and wrong. And His eternal nature ensures that He's going to respond in the right time. But resentment does the exact opposite than that. It's discontent because someone crossed my sovereign plan. And so it creates this righteous anger than me that I think is righteous, that I then act on and lash out in a way when I... When my, give out judgment that's not really helpful. Resentment does the opposite of God's character. So, how do we wait well? We wait well remembering that the judge has his hand on the doorknob. As we consider that, it's amazing as I think about Jesus that he was the holiest person, obviously, whoever lived, the God-man. And yet that holiness didn't, didn't come across as snobby, and arrogant to those who were sinners. So he was perfectly holy in every way, and yet people who had stuff majorly messed up in their lives felt totally comfortable coming to him. Isn't that interesting? You'd think it would be the opposite. But holiness doesn't mean that we need to be viewed as self-righteous. If we're being viewed as self-righteous, we need to look at that. And we could be categorized like that. I've had people say that to me. There's nothing you can do about that at times. But it's interesting that holiness doesn't mean that we're viewed by others as self-righteous. And we consider that as we make judgments, which we have to do, right? You've got to pick babysitters. You've got to pick an insurance company. You've got to pick where you're going to buy a car. You've got to pick who to marry. Like, we make judgments. Jesus knows that. But the kinds of judgments we make need to be characterized by love and not kind of this snarky, critical attitude, especially amongst the family. So wait well. Wait well because the judge is near. The third image that he gives is um, the prophets in Job. So he says, wait well, the steadfast are blessed, is essentially what he's saying. The steadfast are blessed. Both the prophets and Job um, were challenged in how they waited for God, Right? I mean, it sounds all good reading in a story, but when they're experiencing that, there's a gap between what they're promised and what their deliverance. You get that, right? Like, that happens, and it's... These are people who struggled to believe in what God had said. It was difficult for them. Now, the advantage in our text is that we have hindsight, right? So we can say things like, as an example of suffering and patience... Or we consider those blessed who remained past tense. Like now we can see, yeah, that's a, endurance is a great thing. But in, when they're in the thick of it, these prophets and Job, they're not feeling that. You know? <laughs> when you're thrown in the stocks and you're thrown in the cistern and you're thrown in jail and every time you speak the words of the Lord, they treat you like they treat God's words and treat you like trash, like they did Jeremiah. I mean, that's, that's hard to believe that God meant what he said. To see the purpose of the Lord is the way James says it. But that's kind of the point, right? Is that the people who didn't consider themselves blessed were blessed. And the people who couldn't tell what God's purpose was went on to fulfill his purpose because they were steadfast. So even though they didn't get it in the moment, God used them and showed the blessing of steadfastness through the lives of the prophets and through Job. See, God's promises are always fulfilled. In time, it's that last two words that are really hard to swallow, right? Like you don't get a promise from God with like a UPS tracking number. You can go online and okay, where's what's the status of my promise? Okay, it's six months away. All right, I'm gonna hang on there in a little green bar. You know, it's not that kind of thing. You can't track it. You don't know exactly how he's gonna do that. We're largely in the dark with some of those promises. Think about Abraham who had to wait into old age. You're gonna have a kid when you're like a bajillion years old, right? That's kind of the follow-up comment. So he tries his own way. He tries to figure it out or just to pop one out, right? That doesn't work. And what does it say? You know what it says at the very end in describing his life in Hebrews 6.15? It says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And the promise that he thought God was fulfilling through the son, through Isaac, Right? was even greater than that because he was the father of faith of all those who would have faith in Christ to follow. So it was even better than he thought. See, God fulfills his promises in time. When Jeremiah was kind of at the bottom, at the pit, in Jeremiah 15, 20, the Lord says, I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you. Job's life was like a ping-pong ball, right? I mean, the guy got knocked around like crazy. Wealth gone, health gone, kids gone. I mean, just bottomed out. And would your conclusion after reading the book of Job be what James says? You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's always kind of tweaked me a little bit. What do you mean compassionate and merciful? Like, if you read Job, you don't leave with that impression necessarily. But why does James use Job as an example? I think two reasons. First, God was proven to be sufficient to sustain a man in the most dizzying of circumstances. God proves to be sufficient to sustain Job, and the final answer is yes, he is. Even though Job doesn't get an answer to his question, God himself is enough for Job. He's satisfied in the end. The second reason I think he uses the story of Job is that it ends in blessing. God saw to it that Job's story ended with this scene of all his family and friends and sympathy and people being generous to him and He lives his full life, sees four generations, and at the end, the author of Job says, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. So James is saying, when he says, You have seen the purpose of the Lord, that the purpose in all of that difficulty, in the death of kids, in the loss of wealth, in the loss of his own health, that his purpose in that was compassionate and merciful. And you see that in the end. John Piper says, it was God's goal in all his dealings with Job to be merciful and fit him for a greater blessing. And that's what happened. You see what James is doing here? He's getting us to look in the rearview mirror of history, saying, look, if you want to know if, if waiting is worth it, look at the prophets, look at Job, look at people around you who have waited well and God has blessed them. I think of a a guy named Charles Simeon, uh, who was a preacher who was um, opposed so much in his life, but was a faithful minister of the gospel. People literally, uh, they had pews back in those days that had locks on them. People like reserved their little pews, kind of a weird system. But there was a point that people were so opposed to Charles Simeon that they came in and locked their pews and refused to attend and refused to let anyone else sit in their row. I mean that's how uh, opposed they were to this faithful minister of the gospel. And so you think this would have made Charles Simeon a bitter guy, right? Like man, he must have just kind of dwindled out. Here's what he said on his deathbed. Infinite wisdom has arranged the whole with infinite love. And infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. I am in dear Father's hands. All is secure. When I look to him, I see nothing but faithfulness and immutability and truth. And I have the sweetest peace. I cannot have more peace. Amazing. How do you explain that? How do you explain the untold millions of people who have been sustained, the people in the room who are being sustained, by God's faithfulness, there is blessing in steadfastness. And James knows that. And he wants to point us to the lives of other believers to say, notice what God is doing, how he's helping people last. Wait well. You'll join them in that reward. This is why he says, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Steadfast. See how steadfastness has a blessing in two forms, both here and later. And here we're refined and sanctified, and later we're rewarded. Can you think of people now who are suffering greatly, who the Lord is allowing to endure? Right now, there are people like that in our midst. Doesn't their endurance provoke your endurance? You see, people go through things and think, how did they make it through that? right we know the same God that's how see endurance is contagious in that way because it shows our God to be trustworthy he's proven himself reliable in the lives of other people so we can trust him with ours think about Jesus his example in Hebrews 12 1 to 2 as we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses it says lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us why how do we do that looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He despised shame, willingness to be low, exalted to the highest place. Jesus is always a person in our rearview mirror. Always. And we watch him, and we, we, you could say he's not in our rearview mirror, he's ahead of us, right, and we're pursuing He's leading us as we see his faithfulness to past saints. So, what is James saying? He's saying, God's people, Redemption Hill, be patient. Wait well. Be like the farmer. Remember that the judge is near. And look at the lives of past saints who have been blessed because they've waited well. So let me just ask this closing question. How does your heart need strengthening today? How does the sure return of our Lord stabilize your anxious heart? How does that strengthen your faith for what's ahead? Maybe talk about that with a friend, or with a spouse, or with your kids this afternoon. God can help us wait well and endure together, in particular as a body of Christ. It's encouraging. As we come up on our one-year anniversary, we, I just thought it'd be important for us to kind of get, get a bigger picture, to remember this main thing of waiting well and being patient and enduring and steadfast, which I feel like our body's done this last year. You know, it's been a difficult year with fires and with all the change and all those things, and we've remained, we've endured, and God has been the source of that. It wasn't some brilliant plan. It wasn't, well, we're all unique and special. God is good at what He does, you know? So we need to be expecting that in the days ahead as Redemption Hill, expecting his faithfulness in that way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our Lord, for being our example in all these ways, in waiting for, for the, the fruit of the harvest as you did for heeding the warnings of impatience and not not grumbling, although you had every reason to, for for waiting well, for having the, the reward of blessing for your steadfastness. God, thank you that you were steadfast in these ways. God, I pray that you would establish our hearts as a body, that as we gear up for fall and as we do these things and as we walk into the difficult relationships, maybe at work or with our extended families or as we're in a time of transition or as we've uh, been diagnosed in a way that's going to change things as, as life happens. God, I pray that your return would be our anchor. That it would be the ballast in our boat. That, regardless of the size and the scope of the wave, that God, this assurance, this forward looking hope that never changes, would stabilize our hearts. Father, your word says that this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But it does say, as we look to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen. Would you help us and help our hearts to look to the unseen but certain future of your church and find stability there, find our hope there, find refreshment there? And would you do the the weekly bandaging of our wounds and addressing of those, the hurts that we have with this type of hope, that it might encourage us that we would endure and be steadfast. God, it's, we are only going to last because you're involved. And we thank you for that assurance. Keep us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.